0: Hey, folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic. Today's conversation is with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, PhD. She is a neuroscientist who suffered a stroke and then had to spend the next eight years rebuilding her brain from the perspective of a neuroscientist. And as she, she just wrote a book called Whole Brain Living. And she had to... Rebuild her brain. And she was able to experience it and observe it from a very unique perspective. It was great to sit down and talk with her. There's a whole chapter in the book about addiction and recovery and how the 12 steps correlate to the different parts of our brain and how we can take back our power. It was really awesome. It was a great talk. It made a lot of sense. And um, we had a really good time. So, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, Ph.D. Well, thank you for doing this. This was a pleasant surprise on my part, and I just finished your book the other day, um, Whole Brain Living, and um, I I guess what I'm curious about is this is about how your brain works right in all the different facets and maybe you can um but the thing that that interests me and i'm assuming that interests you about being here with me today was about recovery and alcoholism exactly and so not that i am not fascinated by the neuroscience because it's helped me understand how i've behaved in the past and how i continue to behave yes but, what, maybe I mean, I would love to hear a little bit of the, uh, the story of what brought you to this, this, this epiphany, this perception, this idea, these, the ideas in this book, but also um, in the frame of why alcoholism, recovery, and addiction.
1: Well, I think that, uh, well, first of all, my story is I grew up with a brother who would be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So he was only 18 months older than I. So I became fascinated at an early age with we were very different from one another. What is normal? I mean, you don't know. And as children, you don't know what is normal and that anybody's brain could not be normal. You, you just know that people are different. Mm-hmm. So I became very tuned into how we speak and how we communicate with body language and facial language and and language itself and I just was fascinated with what is normal and eventually my brother would be diagnosed with the brain disorder schizophrenia at the same time that I have made it into a PhD program in neuroscience in order to better understand the brain and differences in different people's brains and how that manifests and changes in behavior. And so then I was teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School focused on gross anatomy, cadaver lab, body, body anatomy, as well as neuroanatomy, the anatomy of the brain. And my specialty was how does our brain create our perception of reality. How does it do that? And it was like the universe decided, okay, little girl, you wanna understand reality, let's take uh, you on a wild ride. And I ended up experiencing a major hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of my brain. So through the eyes of a neuroscientist, I got to watch these cells go off circuit by circuit by circuit, ability by ability by ability. And by Mm -hmm. the end of uh, that morning, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had become an infant in a woman's body. However, I was still completely conscious. So even though I lost my left hemisphere and the circuits that allowed me to communicate with the external world, I still perceived myself to be a whole individual. I still was conscious. Mm So it took eight years for me to rebuild my brain and I, I through and I did it by understanding, you know, language was a goal. Uh, well, I had cells. I understood the circuitry of language circuitry. What did I need to do in order to reconnect that circuitry inside of my brain? So my, for eight years, my whole goal was, was, how do I rebuild this circuitry so that I could re-engage in full ability? And, and so that's what has led to, um, I lost my left brain, but I gained the right brain. And then I used my understanding of the brain to rebuild the left brain in order to have a whole brain. And then when you ask about why uh, drug addiction and alcoholism, because that's the great disconnect in how we are as humanity. And to me, the whole goal for a healthy humanity is how do we get these cells to communicate, not just inside of a single head, but then how do two humans communicate with one another and gain a rich an enriched uh life experience uh based more on choice instead of just craving and and circuitry that can lead us down to choosing a road of disconnect.
0: Yeah. Uh so when you you talk about having this stroke and losing all of the the left brain, right? So all of the analytical, the connection with the outside world, with language. Now, this is something that happens to people who do not have your level of expertise and understanding. And so even in that right brain and and in your, your TED talk, which I highly suggest everybody go listen to, you talk about sort of being, and you've said it too, about feeling like an infant and just kind of, I was there, but was there somewhere in there you were like, okay, I know, I know what's going on, and I know how to seek it out, so that what I'm, the question I'm trying to ask is, what was that like? I mean, I, I you know, uh, being able to pinpoint something as it is happening, that was that was helpful in you recovering. That I mean, it took eight years, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, it took eight years to rebuild that circuitry. Well, it's it's probably kind of like um, you have a yearning for where do you live and what's your favorite sports team?
0: Uh, California. Uh, I don't know that I have a favorite sports team. I love running. I have favorite runners. Kipchoge, maybe. Um, OK,
1: so let's say you're a runner and you are you're just just you want to run in the Boston Marathon one day in your life. OK, you have a yearning. Mm-hmm. And you you watch it and you observe it and you yearn for it and you dream about it and you practice and practice and run and run and run and 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 you pay attention to what kind of shoes you wear and you pay attention to making it a priority that you can get there. So so you you have a, this inkling of awareness that that mm-hmm. the, and and you have the yearning. Um, I had a yearning to uh, to recover. I had a yearning to be able to create sound and to be able to, place meaning on language. Again, I had to learn language from scratch. I, I had a yearning to be able to look at a symbol and know what letter of the alphabet that was and why was that important? I had yearning. And in that yearning, I had to balance the effort toward with adequate amount of sleep because there's a, a, a million things, a billion things, a trillion things going on inside of the brain at any moment in time. And and I had to be able to focus very specifically, which took a whole lot of effort on a brain that did not have that capacity to truly really focus well. So it was it was the same sort of thing. It's learning. Hmm. It's like, okay. how do we train our brain to learn anything?
0: Right. And so this book, Whole Brain Living, um, which I, I think I've already said, but I, I very much enjoyed Um <clears throat> I love the way that it breaks down all of the ways in which I succeed and which I fail. All of the basically, and, and this is this is simplifying it, but there's fear and there's faith. This is something that comes up a lot in recovery circles, discussing about fear and faith. And so, and not that fears, right? That a lot of these things that may be perceived as negative cannot be helpful and useful in navigating the world and dealing with difficult situations, we need these things to protect us. Um, yes. You know, we learn those things through growing up in uh, abusive households with alcoholic parents, spouses, all that kind of stuff, the defense mechanisms, right? Yes. Um, and they work until they don't. Yes. So I was wondering if you could go over the, um, the characters a little bit in this, that um, the, both the supposed negative I don't know if there's a better word for that or or the positive.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they're, I, I'm not <laughs> going to judge them as negative or, okay. or I will judge them as positive. I, th- I think that, that whatever we have is sacred. So um, regardless of what its affect is, um, it's there for a reason. So, um, so as we look at the two hemispheres, the biggest difference, well, first of all, there are a few myths that let's get rid of those right off the bat. And the first one is that we only use 10% of our brain. That's simply not true. Neurons are living social creatures who exist inside of social networks of, of circuitry. Mm-hmm. And so if, if it's alive and it's in your head and it's connected to others, it's definitely you're using it. So that's number one, we use our, all these cells. We may not be advanced enough to know what exactly they're each doing, but we know quite a bit about what these cells are doing. So, um, so that's number one. Number two myth is that the right brain is our emotional brain, while our left brain is our rational thinking brain. And the truth of the matter is we have evenly divided emotional tissue between the two hemispheres. So we have two emotional modules of cells, one in the left brain and one in the right brain. And then we have thinking tissue in the left brain as well as in the right brain. So as we look at a brain, it's got these four different modules of cells. And so as I take a brain and I divide it apart, I look at the right brain. And the thing about the right brain is it's right here, right now it does not define the boundaries of where I begin. It does not have an ego so that Joe Bolte-Taylor does not exist in the consciousness of my right brain, but I have that, that ego identification in my left brain. Wipe out those cells, they were wiped out, and Joe Bolte-Taylor didn't exist anymore. I just existed as a living being filled uh, with a consciousness made up of atoms and molecules. And there was no limitation or boundary set on those atoms and molecules because there is none. I am an energy being. I am atoms and molecules in motion. My left brain has a group of cells that defines me, the ego. And then I become an individual. But without those cells, I'm in my right brain. I'm right here, right now. I'm big as the universe. And I have emotion of the present moment. And I have thinking tissue of the present moment. The left brain is though where that definition of me, the ego exists. So to my left brain, which has language, my left brain uses language (laughs) to say, I am Jill Balty taylor I wrote this book, Whole Brain Living. Okay so that's me the individual and now all the information coming in from the universe through my sensory systems gets processed through the filter of me the individual and it has me the individual emotion with a past and a future because there is linearity to that left hemisphere and there is thinking tissue with a past and a future. Mm. So these different modules of cells, the two emotional, the two in the (sighs) right brain for emotion and thinking is completely of the present moment. And it's not about me, the individual, while the left hemisphere is about me, the individual with a past and a future. So as I look at uh, the 12 steps, as I look at the process of number one, I need help. I cannot do this myself, which means by definition, I have to step out of the consciousness of me, the individual, the left hemisphere, and shift my consciousness into the present moment experience of what you just called faith.
0: Yeah. You And another thing that, that really made a lot of sense to me, and you've said this, you've already said this, is that Um, And it was on page 215. Remembering that we are feeling creatures who think rather than thinking creatures who feel. And I know that for me, especially as a man, and in recovery, um, it has been spoken a lot about stoicism and the importance of not feeling of controlling your feelings of um, not showing your feelings. And that didn't always that didn't always feel right for me. Now, that may be true for some folks. And perhaps there was a time in history where that was far more important than I feel it is now, again, at least for me. Um, So it was always difficult for me to go like, I don't need to feel this, I need to be strong, I need to be stoic. And so this was something that really hit home is that I happen to have these thoughts, but predominantly, I have these feelings. And I, I always felt like, in certain circles in certain writings um i was being asked to stop those to hinder them <clears throat> excuse me to block them in some ways and that never that never felt right to me and so reading this i was like oh okay the feelings are fine they're they're not only adequate they should be encouraged and you should feel them fully and then yes. move on right yes.
1: <clears throat> Yes, because when the information streams in through our sensory systems, it first goes into each of those limbic system, the emotional tissue in each hemisphere, the emotion of the present moment, as well as the emotion of relating any information to the past which then looks at the information in the present and says is there any reason from my past that I should push away from this because it's not safe mm-hmm. so the emotional tissue really is about am i safe and how do i put myself in an environment how do i manage the the present moment experience in a way that i'm allowed safety mm-hmm. and if you're brought up in an environment where stoicism and, and people are saying, we need you to be in your thinking and disregard your emotion. Well, that's going to be like a pipe that's ready to blow because the, the energy of what you are as a living being, as a biological human being, energy flows in through that emotional system. So if you're going to cap it off and close it off, you're going to emotionally, you're going to degrade. And if you shift, try to shift into purely a rational thinking left brain, well, there's nothing rational about not managing the emotional energy system that, that, that energy has to go through before you become a rational human being. So you're going to seek alternative behaviors because now just being a rational person Mm -hmm. is not a satisfying living experience.
0: Yes, that's uh, I've I've found that to be very true in my past. Um it was not very satisfying. Being irrational, well, it's it's seemingly, especially in active alcoholism, felt far more satisfying in the moment, but always obviously had some pretty horrific consequences on occasion. Um in the in the chapter on addiction and recovery. You go through the 12 steps. I'm wondering, do you have, what is your connection to the 12 steps and to this this particular 12 step program that you um, you sort of go over and connect to in the book?
1: Well, personally, I, I had a partner who was um, uh, addicted to both drugs and alcohol. And so that was my introduction to their primary relationship was, was with the mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol and not with right. me. Uh, so that was my, my biggest uh, awareness of drug and alcohol addiction. Um, and through my own um, uh, menthol cigarettes was you know my vice and uh, wow talk about a powerful drug um, not just the tobacco and the nicotine but my gosh the menthol uh, because it for me it was menthol it was like if it wasn't menthol I wasn't going to smoke it but if it was menthol it was about the menthol you know and all the excuses and all the reasons and oh it slows down my brain so I Can keep up with my typing of my dissertation and, and it opened my lungs and it opened Mm -hmm. my nasal passages. You know, I, I had my whole story. So, um, uh, but on top of that, I have numerous friends who have been through the, both the Al-Anon and AA programming and, um, and it's successful programming and for many. So then I looked at it after I had written this book on these, the, the two emotional brains and the two thinking brains, and, and asked the question, you know, why is it that this program, what does this program do that allows people to step out of the addiction uh, uh, circuitry inside of their brain, which is the emotional tissue of, that, of the past and the future of the left hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And how do we step away from that craving and from that desire and from that satisfying that addiction? How do we step out of that? What is the 12-step action happening and right from the beginning it is i must admit to myself that i me with these four characters inside of my own head uh the one of me that is drinking actively engaging in my addiction does not have the power in order to step outside of that circuitry. So in my language as a brain scientist, I'm saying, okay, well then what is that actually asking me the individual to do? And it's asking me to step out of the left emotional, what I call character two tissue and to step into the consciousness of the present moment and giving up, uh, giving up my power essentially to the God of my choice. So it might be based on a religion. It might be based on a meditation. It might be based on the cosmic consciousness. You don't care. The, the steps program doesn't care. It doesn't dictate to you a God. It just says, I need help. Where's my help come from? Right. And in my language, it comes from the thinking tissue, of our right brain, which is connected to all that is and is our power to truly self-soothe our own craving ability and our own desire for for hooking into that circuitry of craving and addiction. It helps separate us up out of that addiction.
0: I think that that's really one of the um, most... One of the most important and also one of the most difficult things for people to grasp is this idea of a higher power and finding...
1: Exactly. When you, say,
0: when you say the word God, people run for the hills, especially
1: out, You know, <laughs> um, you know, if uh, and, and to me, that's one of the reasons why this this particular chapter is so important because for all of those people who have tried the 12 step and right from the beginning, I've got to give my power up. It's like, no, I don't want to give my power up. And it's like, well, that's very different than saying, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stop running character two circuitry of my I left emotional craving and the energy of my addiction. And I'm going to step into the thinking tissue of my right brain, which is that, that, that power that is still within me. It is still my ability. And so I'm not, I'm not, you know, for those who can't jump, make the leap from, from uh, uh, my addiction into a higher power that is separate from me. You don't have to. It's right there. You're it's wired right there. for that ability. It's yeah. like, okay, learn about your brain, figure out that you have the power to choose which of these characters you're going to put your energy into.
0: Yeah, one of the things um one of the ways that it was described to me many many years ago was that it can a higher power could just be a higher version of yourself. And so in reading this, that connected with me that oh okay so it's already in there this side right. the other the right side, um, yep. but that it was the it was the higher power or the higher version of myself and that exactly it was the it was where I wanted to be it was not giving into all of the cravings and and I was a cigarette smoker as well and and oddly enough I loved my menthols at one point <laughs> uh, I think I was smoking Benson and Hedges one hundreds. Um, but you know, camel crushes and
1: cool, <laughs> cool. Salem.
0: <laughs> Salem, yes. So, and I remember, and even after what, well, cause when I quit drinking, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't yep. follow any program. I was just out there by myself, lone wolf in it for like a few months. And it yep. wasn't until I was, um, uh, challenged to quit smoking cigarettes for a month. And this is like Mm. October of 2015 that I really started thinking about craving because it was so acute and so severe um, and it would come on at at very specific moments that I started seeing and understanding. And I remember somebody talking about craving a cigarette, that it was like a worm boring through their brain. And the only thing that would stop it was having a cigarette. And I was like, that's exactly right. And so this was the first time that I really started studying the connection between the craving and what it was actually doing to me and realizing, oh, it wasn't making me feel better. It was just stopping the craving from happening. Right. And that was the first time that I even thought about how my brain works was during yes. when I finally quit cigarettes. Yes, because um, well,
1: you know that's fascinating, and that's true. And what you did through the eyes of a neuroscientist is you observed the circuitry in action instead of simply engaging with that circuitry so you didn't go to the store and get a new cigarette or go to a buddy and say can you spare one Mm -hmm. you actually observe the craving happen and we as human beings when we hook into that kind of tissue a part of our brain that little character to emotional tissue that is saying this is going to last forever right Mm -hmm. there's no end To the craving, there's no end to the desire. And it's like, no, this is circuitry. And cells will eventually shift. You can actually observe it instead of engaging in it. If you engage in it, it's like perpetuating the loop of craving. But as soon as you start observing it, you're taking the energy and the power in the brain out of those cells of the craving and of the addiction and observing it through other parts of your brain. So you did that instinctively. It might have taken you a long time, but you find. Finally, found your way to really observing and thinking about that as. Isn't this interesting? This is a group of cells inside of my brain offering me this experience of craving. And the same is true for anxiety or Mm. anger or, or grief or happiness. You know, a good belly laugh doesn't last more than 90 seconds. And when you're observing craving instead of simply perpetuating it automatically, it too should last approximately 90 seconds.
0: And I can do anything for 90 seconds.
1: And you can do anything <laughs> for ninety seconds,
0: except maybe a plank. But you know, I mean, there's there's something there too. <laughs> um, but I mean, that if you want to make if you want to make time, you know, go slow down, get get into a plank position. I always say. But but yeah, and that was it. Was just it was a really big epiphany for me yeah. about about addiction and and crave craving specifically. Not yeah. addiction is far more complicated. But it was really gate. I was able to get a hook on my craving. In yes. those first 30 days of not smoking. And it's been, yes. you know, what almost five and a half years now. So like good for you. And it's you it know, was, oh, it's it been awful.
1: it's been over 30 for me. And every now and again I'll still dream right? that I'm smoking. Yeah, it's amazing, an amazingly powerful addiction. Amazingly um, powerful. Yeah. And
0: and alcoholism, too, with alcohol, and I don't get it so much anymore. I mean, it's been six years. But um, every once in a while, there'll be this sort of, I don't know how to describe it other than this waft out of nowhere. Like, what a yes. beautiful day, wouldn't it? It's so sunny and it's gorgeous and everything's going right. Wouldn't a cold beer make everything better?
1: Exactly. Or seeing, or
0: seeing a bottle of wine in the, like yes. shining in the grocery store. And,
1: yes, oh, the fantasy. So
0: lovely, right? Yes, and
1: yes. One of the things
0: that I have learned is to play that fantasy out and yes. what happens after the first beer then there's the sixth and then there's the
1: Exactly. Next. Yes. And mm-hmm. and that's the key is you know there's nothing wrong with a craving there's nothing wrong with having an episode of sadness or an mm-hmm. episode of grief or an episode of whatever but the difference is may, turning it into a lifestyle. I can still desire and crave menthol and the feeling that that would give me, you know, and I didn't even go to inhale menthol inhalers because it was like, I was not going to trade one addiction for another. I mean, I did that consciously, but you know, I can still have that moment and think, wow. And at the same time, the very next thought is thank goodness I'm no longer in that, that addiction mode of fulfillment. Filling the desire with the behavior. We can break the thought from the desire and we can break the desire from the behavior. None of them are wrong. Each of them is simply cells in having an experience, except for the behavior. So as I'm saying, though, the thinking or the the feeling of, of the desire, there's nothing wrong with me desiring something that I was addicted to. The problem comes if I don't let that circuit run, it's less than 90 seconds, and I engage in a behavior that will set me up for lack of success.
0: So this is, this is really important and it's, and it's coming home to me right now. I mean, that talking to you about, and you've said 90 seconds a couple of times now, and I'm going to ask you, um, I want to talk a little bit about food and food addiction because alcoholics, many of them that I know switch over to sugar and I have seen it do, extremely detrimental stuff to people, uh, yes. sugar, food, fat, whatever, bad food. Um, I've dealt with this myself, um, for years and I'm mm-hmm. still, you know, I, I've gotten better. I don't buy the family size bags of peanut M&Ms anymore. Um, but I, yeah, that was my thing in the, in the I drawer, it. you know, yes, um, but,
1: but John look at, at what's the difference between alcohol and sugar. I mean, how much sugar is there in alcohol? Yeah. So maybe the addiction to alcohol isn't merely an addiction to the alcohol. It's addiction to the sugar and the alcohol. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't think of a single alcohol that isn't, uh, you know, pipe full of sugar. Otherwise we'd all be, you know, what's the difference between a a beer and a a rubbing alcohol, a whole bunch of sugar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think too, and nowadays my, my cravings and food wise are, 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 are better, but they're still there. I still deal with them. Mm -hmm. I still, I still think about food all the time. I still think about, you know, chocolate and peanuts and stuff like that. Um, uh, right. And and we need, we need need food to live. So it's not really like, But
1: see, we just shared a yummy peanuts and chocolate together. And neither of us ran to the, you know, cabinet and grabbed some. Right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the experience of it. Mm-hmm. I think that that it's it's the progression of one circuit saying, um, "Ooh, you know, I can visualize and I can mm, the chocolate and the peanut together. And your your listeners right now are wishing we'd <laughs> shut up because their cabinets right there. But we, there's nothing wrong with that concept. It's, it's the recognition that we have the power to run one circuit and we don't have to run the next circuit, or the next circuit, or the next circuit that activates the behavior mm-hmm. of what we want. I mean, I crave uh, ice cream all the time, but oh, yeah. I and I savor it when I have it, and I'll think about the texture, and I'll think about 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 the flavors and the chunks of chocolate in there. There's always chocolate, right? It's always about chocolate, and and I can and the coolness, but it doesn't mean that I'm gonna engage mm-hmm. in the behavior. I'm gonna let it run its 90 seconds of bliss. And here's the real clincher. I can do that and run that circuit and feel so good about how fantastic that was and feel really good about it. As opposed to how do I feel if I actually go and get that pint or that quart and then I engage in that behavior because then I run the next circuit of feeling horrible. I feel like a failure. I feel fat. I feel, I feel all these awful things. I'm now on this sugar buzz. I'm on this high, but it's all negative. So yeah. it's okay for me to run that little loop of 90 seconds. It's okay. It's not bad. And see, that's one of the things about the brain is that whatever we say, you know, the, the worst thing in the world that we ever did was say no to drugs. Well, all the brain heard was drugs. You know, it doesn't, the no, that has no power. All we heard was drugs, 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 drugs. And then there's an epidemic of drugs because, you know, our motto became say no to drugs and all the brain heard was drugs. So, uh, so it doesn't hear the no. What it hear hears is what are we saying yes to? And if I say yes to the imaginary circuitry of my favorite ice cream or smoking a cigarette or having a cold beer, if I say yes to that in my imagination, I'm running a circuit and I can know that's a circuit. I don't have to run all these 15 circuits that I'm going to do in order to engage in that beer, which is never as good as the original circuit.
0: No, no, it's not. No.
1: It's no, never, and then you're on stuck. the 18th beer, going, well, that was a really bad idea,
0: right? Um, so one of the the so in the in the 12 steps, um, that we do, there's a lot of them are concrete, right? I and mean, we we've talked about trying to figure out God and higher power and higher self. A lot of there's taking an inventory, they're sharing it with somebody else. Yeah. Um, a couple of them that are less concrete that you go over are the mm-hmm. um, remove these defects of character and humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe describe um, a little bit of how you go over those more concrete? Yeah,
1: well, I think that the shortcoming is going to be the craving. Everything begins with a craving. We mm-hmm. don't smoke because we're just on a habitual if we're trying to quit right? We quit because we crave and then we have the habitual. So it's it's this package deal of circuitry. Again, I have a craving, I smoke a cigarette, or I habitually, uh, every day after lunch, I go and I smoke a cigarette, whether I'm craving it or not, right? Mm-hmm. So I can actually look at what is this addiction that I'm looking at, and I can break it up into these different pieces. And, and as I'm observing, as soon as I'm observing myself instead of engaging in the addiction, the energy, again, the brain is nothing but cells and circuitry. So what I'm doing is I'm pulling the energy out of those few cells that are doing my craving or doing my habitual And I'm observing myself. And so if I'm going to give something up to my God, and even if that's my higher self in my thinking tissue of my right hemisphere, then I'm automatically pulling the power of the energy out of the craving circuitry into the bigger picture of my brain. And I think that that's the ultimate goal of of any, you know, you're looking at, the the leaves and and the le- the limbs of the tree you're looking at the behavior um the behavior is i'm smoking a cigarette and and i'm addicted to it or i'm i'm addicted to alcohol and i'm going to the root of the situation i'm saying craving is a byproduct of a small group of cells the habitual of me going to the store and making it easy for myself or buying a, a, a whole carton of cigarettes so that, uh, you know, I have plenty so that I can just continue to feed my addiction and inconvenience myself as little as possible. You know, I can inconvenience myself a lot. And part of that keeps me one step away again from indulging in my addiction, so, so allow it, but each of those are different cells inside of my brain. The part of my brain that's going to say, I'm going to make it inconvenient for me to have an addiction. That's a different group of cells than the craving tissue. And so all kinds of studies show that if, if for some reason by stroke or by car accident, or by some kind of brain trauma that the small group of cells in that character two left emotional tissue gets wiped out and we don't have craving anymore well what do we do about our addiction we stop mm-hmm. otherwise i'm just in a habit and it's like okay well if i'm not having the and if i only engage in my my habit when i'm actually craving then people tend to back off and slow down because oh i'm going to smoke this cigarette to get ahead of the craving right it's like this is all different tissue inside of our brain and to me that's the power of of this as it comes to addiction is we have the ability to consciously choose i'm going to run different circuitry in this moment I'm going to go for a run because my healthy, your healthier part of me is a running part of me. It's my right brain right here right now gets me in my body, gets my blood f- pumping, and I stop thinking about and fantasizing because about my addiction because now I'm I'm in my shoes. I'm feeling right. I'm feeling my zone. I'm feeling my pain. I'm feeling my power.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, oh, you say, feeling my pain. I was thinking about this too, because there'll be a lot of times where I'm on a run and I'm, I'm feeling like, why am I putting myself through this suffering <laughs> and this pain? And like, am I really going to go another, really? You're going to do three exactly. miles today. And exactly. it's not until it's sort of the, I mean, I guess it's a kind of addiction, but it's the opposite because when I'm done, that's when I feel yeah. good about it. That's when I finally rest and everything can relax And instead of getting the sort of instant gratification of a shot of whiskey or a cigarette and then feeling horrible afterwards, it's sort of the opposite where, and I don't, I'm not saying every single run is misery, but um, there's a lot of suffering in there. There's a
1: lot of suffering,
0: (laughs) but I feel great afterwards. Suffering
1: is not, yeah. And, and, you know, we can become just as addicted to that suffering as we can become addicted to the suffering of an alcohol or a pack of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And how many of us as we are actually doing the drinking, we're still got that little character to say in this is not a good idea that I'm going to feel horrible about this. The other parts of our brain are going to hook in. And, you know, it's just like, but a piece of us, and this goes back to the different parts of us. A part of me wants that cold beer so badly. And yet these other parts of me all know that, that there will be that, that we, we are engaging in more suffering.
0: hmm Yeah, you
1: know, so so where is there peace? How do we find peace? And to me, that that is part of the beauty of recognizing. Well, we have these four different characters inside of ourselves. Which part of me right now thinks that having a beer is a good idea? And what's character one say? And character one says. Jill, I'm not going to set you up so that you've got a beer anywhere near you. We're not buying a carton of cigarettes. We're not even buying a pack. If we're going to bum, we're going to bum one and we're going to make it really inconvenient. And then the characters in the right brain are going, okay, well, what else can we do? You know, I live on a boat on a lake. I'm going to go jump into the lake and I'm going to bring myself into the present moment because craving has to be in the present moment or there's absolutely no point in acting on it. So if I have a craving from my past, I can say to you, well, John, 10 minutes ago, I had a craving for a cigarette, but that's 10 minutes ago. That's not right here, right now. Why on earth would I not act on something that is current and present, Mm
0: -hmm. you know?
1: So how do I get myself out of that circuitry? Let it run for 90 seconds of craving. It's behind me. I've distracted myself. You're now in the blisters in your feet. Right. And I'm thinking, honey, why don't you just go over there and get some better socks so that your feet can wick better (laughs) and then you won't be suffering so much.
0: Um, can you, so we, we have touched on, there's the, the left thinking, the right thinking, the left emotional, the right emotional, and finding a way to get them all to work together because they all serve important functions in our daily lives. Right, And you talk about this brain huddle um, yes. of getting those understanding and identifying to the thing I love is that you give each one a name.
1: Yes.
0: And so, uh, and there's the, the, uh, also in the book and I have not gone, I haven't done the homework in here. I haven't answered all the okay. questions, but I, I plan on going back and doing this. Um, sure. <clears throat> cause I think I, I'm, I'm one for homework. Homework's always been helpful to me. Right. Um, but can you talk about the brain huddle and how that works when, not necessarily dealing with craving, but just in, in general, yeah, um, absolutely. getting the four connected.
1: Yeah, so um, the left-thinking character is is our A-type personality, which likes to organize and control everything, people, places, and things. It likes to be the boss in our head. Um, so it's the part of us that got us here on time together, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we all have that part of ourselves. That's the rational left-thinking brain that we all have. And, um, and then character two is the emotion of the left brain, which is uh, all of our pain and trauma from the past. It is our craving tissue, and it is any fears that we project into the future. So our addiction is in our little character two. Our, um, our trauma from the past is in our little character two. But at the same time, this is the tissue that shows us our pain and our limitation. And if I'm a living being and I'm experiencing emotional pain, let's say I'm a jealous type. Well, you know, how does my jealousy serve me? Jealousy probably self-sabotages just about every emotional relationship I ever had because other people look at me and think, oh, well, she's the jealous type. You know, there's the green eyed monster. So it is it shows me what my limitation is if I want to grow up to be a healthier human being. So character two is important because it shows us how our weakness is. And based on that, we know the boundaries of, of what do I need to, how can I approach myself so I can be a healthier person? Character three is the right here, right now, present moment experiential character. What does it feel like to be, uh, to put how much humidity is in the air? Um, What does it feel like to go for that run and to be out in the present moment? What does does it feel like when I jump into the, the water and I feel the pressure of the water against my face? So the right here, right now, experience of the present moment And then character four is the thinking tissue of that right hemisphere, which again, it's not about me, the individual. It's about I'm atoms and molecules. I'm this amazing living organism. I have this incredible life force power. I've got this beautiful brain with these beautiful cells. I have the power to choose moment by moment who and how I wanna be in the world. And oh my gosh, I'm alive. And there's that awe and that wonder and that sense of gratitude that I exist at all. So these are the four characters and the brain huddle is when any of those four characters decide in this present moment, Character one is might be making a decision that you know we're going to go and we're going to do this thing, and it's like, well, my character three might not want to go and do that because they don't like to do that kind of a thing. I don't want to be obligated to go to dinner with my family again. Why do I have to do that? You know, and character one saying we're obligated, this is what we're doing. So little character three comes on and says, well, I'd really rather go jump in the lake. And character two's going, well, I'm not. I going to go because, you know, uh, I'm going to drink if I go, because every time I go and hang out with these people, I'm going to go and I'm going to drink. And so I don't want to drink. And so character three is going, It's a bad idea. And character four is going, okay, well, let's really all come on board and decide about what is the healthiest thing for us as the individual if we're not worried about one, appearances, or two, uh, engaging in some kind of an of a unhappy experience, and character three just wants to, you know, uh, do whatever. So the brain huddle is when we actually get to know each of our four characters, we honor the, the, the skill sets of each of the four characters, and all four characters are working together in order to navigate the next moment of what is the best decision for us as a whole right And all of a sudden, all the characters are on board. So, you know, and it can be any of the four characters is calling the brain huddle at any time, but you're absolutely right. If character two is hooking in and saying, I really, I'm craving this, I'd really like to have a beer, character one's going to go, Okay, well, what do we think about that? Is that a good idea? (laughs) Character three can go, Well, what do I think? Do what would I rather do? And character four is going, What do I think and what do I do? And really allowing the energy Mm -hmm. in the brain to go whole brain living, which is why to me this book is so important whole brain living, the anatomy of choice, and the four characters that drive our life. It's all about the whole brain, and we have a whole brain. Why not get to know it, use it as a roadmap so that we can navigate the best life we want to live?
0: Yeah, and what I what I'm hearing from you just right now describing all this that I um that just occurred to me is that this is a way of us to define our new boundaries in recovery. Like you talk about going to visit family that perhaps might trigger something in that and how we one, define those boundaries that maybe we, what we do and do not do, what we, where we go and where we do not go to, to protect those parts of us that are a little more vulnerable, but also to help develop those skills and those, and, and, and bolster those feelings of inadequacy or vulnerability or fear of, of drinking again, um, so that we can eventually walk through the fire, go to our family's house yep. and not drink in, in front right. of those things that used to trigger us. And right. one right. of the things I wanted to ask your, um, your, your thoughts on this. I was in a meeting once and somebody said, one of the things about recovery is we, well, we all have buttons that people can push. Yep. And the ultimate goal of recovery is to Get rid of those buttons, and if we can yep. get rid of those buttons, nobody can ever push them. Yep. And from a neurological standpoint, yep. can you can you maybe talk to Absolutely. me about buttons and getting rid of them?
1: Yeah. Well, when you think about what are those buttons, those are emotional. You know, we are biologically programmed as emotional creatures, feeling creatures who think to be alarm, alarm, alert, alert. So that's going to be the trigger. So um, and we're programmed for alarm, alarm, alert, alert in order to protect ourselves from a potential danger in the external world. So, you know, if somebody comes in and um, uh, and they they say something to you that inevitably and nobody does this better than family. Right. Uh, because, you know, we grow up with them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, let's say they bring up something that is inevitably going to make you unhappy. Well, first of all, if I'm looking at you and I, or let's say you're my brother. And I know inevitably you and I getting together is going to be hostility, right? Just because that seems to be our past relationship. So now it's a holiday, Uh, mom wants us to come and visit. You, you know, we're thinking, I'm thinking, oh Lord, I'm gonna be with John. And you're saying, oh my God, Jill's gonna be there. And uh, inevitably one of us is is gonna say something to, you know, just to push the other one. And if I sit there and I look at you and I go in there as my character one, which is thinking uh, and observing, then I can actually set myself up to not be triggered by you. I don't have to put my little trigger out there, my hypersensitivity. I can come in as a more mature part of myself and say, John, you know, here i am throw it at me and i'm just gonna sit here and i'm gonna watch you act like an idiot as you move into your little hostile character too and you're just gonna try to poke all my my buttons mm. and if i put the trigger out there for you to trigger then we're gonna have a two character two character two tit for tat we're gonna have a huge fight mom's gonna say you people you will never grow up you know you've been fighting for 50 years And, um, but I don't have to, I don't have to take you seriously at all. First of all, do I have to be in the presence of you? No, just like you said, healthy boundaries. Okay, mom wants us to come together. So the gift I'm gonna give to my mother on on a holiday is I'm gonna show up and you're gonna be in the room and I'm gonna just observe you instead of engage with you. And as you come and you come after me with all your little pokes and prods, I'm gonna stay in my character one and I'm just gonna watch you. I'm not gonna put the trigger out there for you. I'm not gonna react to you emotionally, because I'm not going to give you my power. And as soon as I fight with you, I have given you my power. I have given up my power. I am now my ugliest self. You are now your ugliest self. And we just ruined our mother's Thanksgiving. Why did we even go in the first place? Right. And it or might cause you to the, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have the power to make me drink unless I give you that power and Mm -hmm. you can't make me drink. Mm -hmm. If I'm in my character one and I don't want to have a drink, then you can be your low self. But I don't have to be my lowest self. I can stay in my higher self and I can observe instead of engage. And I can really become and let other parts of me step forward. I, You know, we have so much more power. Over what we've been trained. And so it's like, why would I give my power to you when you've been hostile to me for 50 years? I don't want to do that. And I don't want to give my power to the bottle because the bottle isn't going to fix the problem it's just going to lower me and maybe soothe and numb me. And then it doesn't do anything for my relationship with you. And it's certainly you just, I just, I just, you know, we give each other each other's power and it's like, I don't want to give you my power and I don't want to give the bottle my power, but I love my mother and I'm going to show up for this holiday.
0: There are, you know, some, moments i remember in past relationships sober um as well but having arguments where this kind of information would have been helpful <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean like i'm i'm just going back and going huh all yeah. i was doing was reacting to somebody else's exactly anger just and and it did not and it didn't help the it, it just exacerbated the situation it Just
1: as soon as i trigger my reactivity and, and it, 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 so much of it becomes predictable. I mean, let's be real, John, right? If I go to a bar, I'm going to want to drink, right? Mm-hmm. If I go to a ball game party where there's a bunch of beer around, I'm going to want to drink, I'm smarter than that. So if I don't think that I can step out and just observe and be, in, be good with everybody else being, you know, they're drinking fools and I need to go join in that party, then why do I show up in the first place?
0: Yeah.
1: Why wow. not take responsibility for the energy that I bring into every moment of my life? I have that power. You have that power. We all have that power. And then there's this tiny little voice inside of ourselves that says, mm, crave, crave, crave. Well, okay, great. I'm capable of craving. 30 years out of smoking menthol cigarettes, I get a whiff of menthol and it's like, ooh, I remember that. 90 seconds, it comes and gone. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, I don't give up my power. Yeah. We yeah. have so much more power. We have so much more power. And to me, that is part of the beauty of the the 12 step is that part of it is if I don't think I do have my power, I got a sponsor. I can reach out. I got a lifeline somewhere else, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oftentimes multiple lifelines. I mean, that's multiple
1: lifelines.
0: We repeat it all the time in recovery. You're not alone. You're not alone. Nobody does it alone and reach out to anybody. And, you know, I have, I have said that about myself and and heard it multiple times. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of it is, is knowing that, okay, well, I don't have, there's going to be times where maybe I don't feel like I have access to my power. There's gonna be times yeah. where I feel extraordinarily vulnerable or stuck yeah. in my character too. and gosh, yeah. wouldn't it be nice to have a phone number to call, uh, whatever, message me on Instagram, whatever the exactly. whatever the lifeline is. And so it, right. it kind of calms you down, walks you right. off the ledge, gets you out of that character right. too and reminds you that right. there's three other parts. That you can There's go three other
1: parts to your brain. And to me, that's part of, of the beauty of this power is that when you really get to know your own character one, that becomes a lifeline. Mm-hmm. When you really know your character three, that becomes a lifeline. And when you really know your own character four, that becomes a lifeline. And that's the power of the brain huddle when the character two is full force, full craving in this moment. I need to talk, I I need something beyond me to help me pull the energy out of my little character too. How do I step out of that into the power of these other characters? And that's why I love this program because, because this program allows people to reach right from number one, I got to step into, I'm vulnerable. I'm not able to use the same emotions and, and behaviors to get out of this that got me into this. I need a lifeline. And that's step number one is yes. my lifeline. I need a power other than that is greater than me. And if the language helps better is I need a lifeline in my character for, because it's right there in my brain. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm giving my power up to something that I have to have some big old faith in because I don't have that big old faith and I'm making it up. Right. And, you know, right. it's step one. You can't be making it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, No, that's great. I mean, that's one of the things that I was really, um, you know, it. I wanted to jump right to the chapter about addiction as I often do with books, but it was, it made so much sense and it was so helpful because I have, I didn't, I didn't jump to faith and I didn't jump to God and I didn't jump to higher power right away. In fact, I fought it pretty You went cold turkey (laughs) yeah you went cold
1: turkey and you didn't just go cold turkey with one addiction you Uh went cold addiction with multiple addictions and 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 here's another thing that's really do not suggest that
0: by the way (laughs) but yeah no
1: it's tough I, i did that too and and it is tough um but the other thing about it is that when it comes to recovery um if you if the character two is the character that is addicted, it is the character two that has to go through recovery, mm. you know, because we went cold turkey. So what does that mean? That means I jumped out of and denied my character two and I leapt into my character one and I got into my character one because my mother bribed me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for three months, my mother said to me, uh, I will pay you $10 a day for every day you don't smoke a cigarette. And to a starving graduate student, $300 a month was a whole lot of money. And then whatever money i saved because i wasn't smoking cigarettes anymore right, right. so i was all of a sudden rich in my mind so i bribed myself into being a character one in order to because now i had some cash flow and i could do other things and i desperately wanted to get off cigarettes i wanted i wanted to to get rid of of that but i and but my mother paid me for what three or four months and then i and then i got to a point where the, it was out of my blood. I'm an anatomist. I'm a neuroanatomist. I was like, okay, any craving I have is no longer physiological. What after 10 days, all the, the nicotine and caffeine's out of your blood. So now it's all a mental game. And so then for me, that was enough for me to then go back to that, that little character too, and say, um, How do we feel about not being actively addicted now? But I had to go back into that character and let her decide that she was not going to do this anymore, because if that little character, too, is not involved, then first time I'm at a party and somebody offers me a cigarette, I'm going to go, is it menthol? Mm-hmm. you know and there, and there we go again so the little addicted part of my brain has to be engaged in the recovery or i will probably have a relapse
0: yeah i still sometimes and not always and this but with cigarettes i will occasionally when something comes up i will do a little pantomime and i'll just be driving and i'll you know and i i do that and maybe that's part of my 90 seconds or yeah, whatever maybe and I that's part just, of your 90 tapping seconds. It out and, yeah, you know whatever it is and so it's yeah. it but um i find it helps or it does. I, ha- I have a friend who's um been dealing with uh over the years multiple health issues and has changed his diet drastically and has has succeeded in in Knocking back diabetes and um, other things that have happened. And we will occasionally get together and we will regale. Um, about cheeseburgers that we've eaten in the past and large Dr. Peppers and like all these things, you know, and go like, oh, so delicious. And then
1: his, his if he were be- if his sugars being monitored, you know, <laughs> it probably goes wham, because the, the the body, the body doesn't know the difference between that which is fantasized and that which is not mm. at a neurological level and imagining is still the same as the satisfaction but the the long-term impact after that 90 seconds you know we know what is reality and what is not so my guess is though that when you were fantasizing about that dr pepper the sugar went up
0: is that true is that really that's wow okay well i'll i'll I'll, I'll fantasize about a small dr pepper
1: yeah small dr pepper
0: (laughs) but yeah um i don't want to take up too much more of your time here um but I, I thank you very much, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Um, it was awesome to speak with you. I don't know if you have any last or parting words for those of us in recovery. Um, As from a neurological perspective.
1: You know, I think, I think we have so much more power over than we've ever been taught. And when we allow ourselves to engage in whatever addiction, whatever addictive behavior, that that's a small part of our brain. And don't forget that you have this other massive, beautiful collection of cells. You can get to know them. You can get to know what their strengths are and you can then use them as your own brain team as the brain huddle in order to self-soothe and to carry us through that experience of not just the craving, but the habitual behaviors. We do have the power to move beyond that circuitry of that little character too.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. So Dr. Jill, thank you so much. It was, it was nice to meet you. Um, thanks thank for, you, for doing this and um I'm going to go pretend to go smoke a cigarette now. Um, <laughs> just, I, I'm just, I'm glad to know that like, there's, there's a reason behind all this and you yeah. know, it, it's, it makes it so much easier to deal with yeah. and to dismiss the stressful moments when I go, Oh, that's, I have all the, I have all the the power. I have yeah. all the parts I can, I can deal yeah. with. Myself.
1: And you're not, you know, you, you know, you're not denying yourself that moment of pleasure, you're just stopping it. And I have that circuit, I will always have that circuit. And that's why alcoholism is a disease. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, because all it takes is that first drink to to and the thing about alcohol and drugs Mm -hmm. is it drops our inhibition so that we do not just run that fantasy of that one tiny little loop, but we act on the next, on the next, on the next, which ends up in the habitual behavior. And we can break the thought from the emotion from the behavior. We have that power.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's true. It's very, very true. I mean, if I can do it, I mean, Anybody can do it, (laughs) Um, but
1: it's tough. Circuitry is powerful. Circuitry is life, you know, Mm -hmm. but we do have the power to choose which of that we're going to put the energy in and into and what circuits we're going to run.
0: Well, Dr. Jill, thank you very much for doing this.
1: Thank you, John. I appreciate your time.
0: Thanks again for listening. Our music as always is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at A's for Alcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later.
1: Yeah.